I remember being eight years old in a theater in Macomb, Illinois, when I heard these five words, no, I am your father. Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader to Luke Skywalker, the end of the movie on the sky bridge, no, I am your father. One of the most iconic plot twists in cinema history. It's a feature, right, with good, sometimes good filmmakers use the very end to reveal something previously hidden or partially hidden to the audience. And it changes your perspective on the whole story. And that's, there's several good plot twist movies. In fact, uh, movie makers like M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan have tried to make a career on plot twists, some better than others, admittedly. But what happens is something is revealed to the audience, which then you go back and watch the movie again, and you can never watch the movie the same way because you know what's coming, and it's changed everything. So there's this like, oh, collective, if it's done well, and the audience like, oh, there's this, something happens in you, and all, you kind of run it back through, oh, what was that, that hint, and that hint, and that hint in the story, and then if you listen to it again or watch it again, it's different because you know where it's going. One of the ways the New Testament talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ is as a mystery. Not a mystery that can't be known, but a mystery that had not been known until that time and got revealed. It was something, if you will, partially hidden to the audience, to the people, that after the resurrection became known. In fact, there's a well-known spot in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus is talking to a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and they're a little slow on the uptake. They're a little slow in what's happening. And here's, here, here are these words of Jesus. <laughs> he says, oh, foolish ones. It means dull. Hey, y'all, kind of dull here. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets that all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it's like, don't you know, all of Moses, all of the... It calls the scriptures here. We call it the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament was pointing to me. And Jesus, like line upon line, tells them how it is that all Moses and, and all the prophets and the, and the wisdom literature and the history was, was actually pointing to me the whole time. And their interpretation, their experience of this was they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They were having this experience that, that we do in a plot twist or like you do when the Empire Strikes back for the first time. Oh, no, I am your father. Like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe we didn't see it before. And Jesus opens it to them. And then what would have been true of them every time they read the Old Testament or heard an Old Testament story, they could never have heard it the same way again because they knew what it was pointing to. And that's as we have been walking through the Old Testament, we keep showing that, that it's not actually about the characters in the Old Testament. It's about the one the story is pointing to. It's about Jesus. The story we're looking at today, the account of David and Goliath, I think is maybe the story in the Scripture about which we are most tempted to forget that it's pointing to someone else, that it's pointing to Jesus. We are probably most tempted in this story to turn it into some morality tale about courage. So we, and you could right now, Google, 
please don't. But you could on your phone right now Google, you know, a book about facing your giants or your Goliaths must fall or five smooth stones for your life to take down your giants. It's all out there, right? The problem is Jesus himself said, it's really not about that. It was pointing to me. Ironically, if we do see how it points to Jesus, I do think it births all kind of courage in God's people but only if we refuse to put ourselves in the hero position. What normally happens, we read the story of David and Goliath, and somehow we all put ourselves in David's spot, kind of the hero in this story. Like, why would we not be the people on the hills cowering? I don't know. Every, you know most of the data in my life says I probably shouldn't put myself in David's spot, but somehow every single one of us would read it and say, I pretty much like David in this. It's not about David. It's not about us. It's about another warrior king who fights and delivers his people. Put a, a quote in here from the book Unfolding Grace that we took sort of the inspiration of this series from, uh, we, just the outline of it. But Drew Hunter, who's a theologian and writer and a friend of uh, mine and Taylor's, Drew writes this, Nothing contrasts the value systems of God and the world like the narrative of David and Goliath. This is not about how to take on giants that stand in your way, the way of your dreams. It is about the weak versus the strong, faith versus ignorance, the living God versus lifeless idols. It is ultimately about how God rescues his helpless people through his spirit-anointed, faith-filled, serpent-crushing warrior king. Knowing that, we got to go back and read the whole Bible differently. We can't just come and read this story and say, well, this must be a story of how young men can be courageous or young women can be courageous. You may get courage from it, but it's not about that. So on one level, David and Goliath is about a shepherd boy fighting a hardened veteran Philistine warrior. That's true. On another level, it is about God's anointed king of Israel bringing safety to God's people in the promised land. But at the deepest level, as Jesus himself taught in Luke 24, this is about God fighting a cosmic battle, right? A cosmic battle that begins in the Garden of Eden and ends at the cross and gets worked out in history. And those little details are planted in this story. If you were a movie watcher, you call those Easter eggs, like something dropped in there where you discover, oh, this had meaning we're not, we weren't quite sure of. So I want to pay attention to some of the details. Uh, the Hebraist Robert Alter, Hebrew scholar, said, this, this story in particular is different than other ancient Hebrew literature. It's, it's so detailed. Now, we're going to read the story, and we'll think nothing of the detail because we are used to modern novelistic fiction and in-depth biography with all that kind of detail. The other ancient literature from this time, especially in the Hebrew culture, did, culture did not have that level of detail. That detail is there for a reason. So I want to walk through here and pay a little bit of attention to that detail. And as we do, what emerges is this reality that you, if you're in Christ, and that we together have a warrior king who fights for his people. And as we see that, it brings strength and courage to us. So I want to walk through this passage and then simply ask one application question before we go to the communion table. Just one. Here's the flow to this point. Uh, for Sam, in 1 Samuel, Saul was anointed king. We saw that last week. The people said, we want a king. It was a sinful ass. Not that having a king was sinful, but they were doing it out of fear. And God, through Samuel, said, this is a bad idea. This king's not going to be good. And they said, we want him anyway. And so the Lord said, fine, you can have your king. He was not a good king. 
Saul had some victories, but largely he had an unfaithful reign, and God had rejected him as king. The chapter just before this, Samuel goes to the family of Jesse and finds Jesse's youngest son, David, and anoints him as the future king of Israel. David is not the king yet. He's just been anointed by the prophet, even though I'm sure all of Samuel's rest or the rest of Jesse's family thought Samuel was just this old prophet who was losing it because David was not that impressive, and he was the youngest one. So David's been anointed king, but he's not yet the king. Saul is still the king, but he is losing the grip on the kingdom. So that's where it picks up, 1 Samuel 17. So I encourage you to follow along. There's quite a bit of text here, as have been in this series. I'll read a little bit of it and make some comments, and we'll keep moving. Now, verse 1, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped at the valley of Elah, and drew up in line, of, in, in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. So the Philistia was mobilizing to take back land that had been captured by Israel under Samuel's reign. So Samuel had expanded the, the borders. Saul, the word is out that Saul's losing his grip. He, uh, he's having actually some mental issues, we would say today. And maybe bolstered by that courage, they're pressing in and they're, they're attacking Israel. And so they come together in the place called the Valley of Elah, which is about maybe 13 or 14 miles from Bethlehem. I was there just a couple years ago, standing on the, where the Philistines would have been camped, looking down in the valley. So it's this, these hills on both sides, maybe three, 400 meters tall. Uh, not really mountains, they're kind of scrubby hills. And in the, in the middle is a valley at its widest spot, about a half a mile across. There's a road that goes through it now. But, uh, so the Philistines would camp on one side, the Israelites would camp on the other side, and in the, back, in the middle of the valley they could line up and fight. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, literally scale armor. And the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So, there's a couple of details here I want to point out and then ask you to tuck away for a couple minutes. One, his name, Goliath of Gath. Gets repeated a few times here. Goliath of Gath, Goliath of Gath, Goliath of Gath. He wears a helmet made of bronze. Interesting detail, set it aside. His armor, there is a word for armor, but this is a different word for armor. This is scale armor. Set it aside. We'll come back to it. This is what is known as trial by single combat, which was known to the, to the, uh, to the tribes and the clans in the ancient Near East. Although Israel, it looks like, never did it, except for maybe one time, where in order to avoid mass casualty, they said, why don't you just pick your best, and we'll pick our best, and they can come out and fight each other. Whoever wins, if, if our team wins, our guy wins, you become our servants. If your guy wins, 
will become your servants. And they would take that as the gods, whatever the gods were speaking, uh, the gods' will over the situation by whatever champion would win. Now, whether they usually abided by the rules, like, okay, your guy won, so we'll become your servants, is highly doubtful. Because what happens at the end of this is the Philistines lose and they run away, right? So they're they're not all about serving Israel. Um, But at least it sort of extends the thing, the timeline, because these guys are farmers on both sides. They don't want to fight, right? They're not not full-time military people. And out steps from the Philistines one called a champion. Literally, that's a man between, a guy bred for this purpose, to stand between the armies, He is a hardened veteran killer. This is what he does. Now, I do want to point out something here. I don't don't love to do this because I I don't want you to mistrust in any way your English Bibles. But I do occasionally have to point something out here. In the history of how transmission of the biblical texts go, as our confession says, they are inerrant in their original manuscripts in that God delivers them to the prophets uh, through several means, but as they were given, we trust they're inerrant. But then, you know, there's no printing presses, right? You have to copy them by hand over time. And before A.D. 70, before the destruction of Jerusalem, Jewish Old Testament texts were copied precisely. I mean, the, the, the scribes would do this. This was what they did, letter upon letter upon letter. They got to the halfway point of the Old Testament text and then stopped and counted backwards to make sure they hadn't missed any of the tens of thousands of characters. Count forward again, start and finish and do the same thing. It was very precise in all of Israelite history until the destruction of Jerusalem. Then the, the Jews are persecuted, they're sent to the four winds, and then you can imagine it's like copying manuscripts in a war zone. You don't have enough time, you're, it's fragmented, you know, and things are getting uh, burned and all this kind of stuff. So it gets a little sketchy after that. And so there's a whole discipline called textual criticism, which it doesn't mean like being critical. It's just like getting to the earliest text possible back closest to the original manuscript because that's where we find, you know, the least um, errors creep in. And you can see how an error would be made if, you know, you're just, well, a lot of Hebrew letters, if you've seen them, all look the same anyway. So one little thing, you know, if the scribe falls asleep, it's a, you know, it's a difference between two letters and it could be a little bit different. Okay, why am I telling you this? There's a reason. When the King James Bible was translated in 1611, the Old Testament text they used was called the Masoretic Text, which is a fine text. It's great. Except that it is a, what we would call a relatively new text. It was what they had in 1611, 1609 to 1611. It was what they had. But because of archaeology and good scholarship, we have texts that are much earlier than that. Um, in fact, 1 Samuel's translated, I think, from the Aleppo text, uh, which is about 1060 A.D. So that's a long time after these events. The Aleppo text has Goliath at six and a half cubits tall, which is about nine and a half feet tall. Okay? There are much earlier texts, including some from 200 B.C., so a thousand years before that, that agree with each other, text families that not, don't have them at six and a half cubits tall but having it four and a half cubits tall, which means he'd be about 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, Probably, I think most, in fact, a lot of your English Bibles where it says six and a half cubits will have a little note and down at the bottom says, or four and a half. You know, Dead Sea Scrolls, Septuagint, and, and these little codes. 
why am I telling you all this? So it's six and a half, six and a half, seven is, is tall still, right? Uh, especially, we know from archaeology, the average Hebrew male at that time was like 5'3 to 5'6. So this is a person at, at six and a half feet who's huge. In fact, he'd be like a head taller than everybody. Why is that important? Who else, if you remember from last week, is a head taller than everyone? Saul is a head taller than everyone. It's pointed out specifically twice in the text. He's a head taller than everyone. And do you remember when Samuel said, you don't really want him, 1 Samuel 8 says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king that's a head taller than us. Now there's an enemy coming and says, I'm a head taller than you. Who's going to fight me? Who's the natural person in Israel to go out and fight Goliath? Saul. Saul is not about that at all. Okay. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath walks out and he says, I defy. That's a word that will be used six times in this narrative. I mock, I scorn, I treat you all with contempt. Send out a man, if you have one. You got a man in there? Come and fight me? Implication, if you're not going to come out and fight me, I guess you have no men. Only boys in your ranks. The people are afraid. In fact, the text specifically points out it's not just the people who are afraid. It is Saul and all the people were afraid. It's pointing out subtly and directly the one they chose to be their leader was actually full of fear and would not be a warrior who would deliver them. He would not be a representative warrior that they needed. Verse 12. Now David was the son of Jesse, who had eight sons. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So David, probably 18, 16 to 18 years old, 19 years old maybe, 20 years was the, the first age of military service. And we see from this that David would have been willing for military service, but he wasn't old enough yet. So he'd go back and forth about 14, 15 miles, so a four or five hour trip by foot. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. 40 days, just a detail, tuck it away. And he does so at morning and evening. Why does Goliath come out at morning and evening? Well, that's a very specific phrase in the Old Testament. What else happens at morning and evening? Worship. Sacrifice. They would, have, they would have created makeshift altars there, but they would have been doing worship, small sacrifices in the morning and in the evening. And so when the people of Israel are worshiping, each time they're worshiping, Goliath comes out and says, who's going to fight me? Remember, for him, it's a religious reality. Is that little God you're, you're worshiping over there, Israel, is he stronger than the gods of Philistia? Because this is the battle of the gods. So he's mocking Israel. He's mocking the one they're worshiping. That's why it says he comes out morning and evening. 
making this defiant, arrogant claim. I defy not only you, but the God you're worshiping over there. Verse 17, And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Now Saul, uh, all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. I skipped a bunch in there about his brothers being angry with him. You can read that later. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, again, Goliath, Gath, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. David had not heard him before. Everyone else who hears him is afraid. Verse 24, all the men of Israel when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. We just keep hearing about how fearful they were. So probably over time, the armies would creep up, right? They would get closer, and then Goliath would come out and say, who's ready to fight me? Everybody else takes a step back, <laughs> so they, they, flee, they flee back. That's the picture. And the men of Israel said, apparently to David or behind the lines, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And listen, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. So I think, it's just hard to interpret, but it seems like David is legitimately confused. Like, probably thinking, why doesn't the king, who we have chosen to lead us in battle, and is a head taller than everybody, and an accomplished warrior, go out and fight this other warrior, Goliath? Why is he giving his daughter, why would he bring people into his kingly lineage instead of actually being the king? Why would he do this? Why would he give away so much? So this is the first time in the Bible that David speaks. After this, David has a lot to say. Uh, you know, over half the Psalms are written by David. A lot of First Samuel, Second Samuel. Like there's a lot. This is the first words David utters in the Scripture. And in the first utterance of David in the whole biblical narrative, he brings in something that has not been in this narrative yet and has not been existent in the kingship of Saul. He brings in God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? David reminds them something. God is in the house. And how many times in our life do we just get down this path of fear and concern and we kind of acting like functional atheists, right? And somebody just says something and we remember, oh, yeah, the Lord. I am totally not alone in this thing at all. We have a warrior. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. So apparently fear has gripped this situation so much that even one person with a voice of courage gets an ear to the king. When you think about this, David's just this 18-year-old kid who's mad at what's happening. You think about your life when you were an 18-year-old kid, no matter what happening. You know, the president wasn't calling you. It's like, what? tell me your concern. But somehow, 
probably because the situation was so tense and David stood out as one who actually wasn't fearful. And there are some times we see characters in the Scripture say, we ought to emulate them sometimes. A lot of David's life, we don't want to emulate. Sometimes it's not bad. Verse 31 when, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let no man's heart fail. Literally means not let no man's heart fall to the ground or fall back. Maybe, especially, he's saying, especially yours, Saul. You're our champion, If your heart fails, what of all your men? How can your men be courageous if your heart fails? If your heart fails, their heart will fail. And then what of our land will be overrun? What about our our wives and our children? What about all of our town? Let not your heart fail. Verse 33. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So interestingly, back to the Saul not being a huge giant. um, Now, he's tall, right? Think of Shaq. Think of Shaquille O'Neal. Have you ever seen somebody who's like seven foot tall? In our, you know, we're all about six inches taller than average then. Uh, Think about someone who's seven foot tall. That is a very tall person. We rarely see a person seven foot tall. You watch the NBA, you think they're everywhere, but there's hardly anybody. But you see when you're like, this is the tallest person I've ever seen. And think about a seven foot tall ripped guy with armor. Like this is an intimidating person. But, but Saul doesn't say you can't beat him because he's so large. In fact, Saul is never, or golly, Goliath is never called a giant in this passage. He says you can't beat him because he's been a warrior from his youth. He's a hardened veteran professional killer, and you're a boy who shepherds sheep. That's why he says it. And then David sort of gives Saul his resume a little bit, verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant, David, used to keep sheep for his father. Yay. Um, and, And there came a lion, and when there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He's defied God and God's armies. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand or the paw of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So he's like, you can do it. Now, why does Saul let David fight? No idea. That's not a good idea. Okay, yeah, great, you killed a lion. (laughs) You know, this is the top of the warrior class. Saul is losing his grip mentally. This might be part of the reason, and this, this might be owing to why he does this. He's starting to lose it, but he's in control. So he's in charge, so he says, you go fight. Verse 38 Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Same language. And then David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. So 
For some reason, it sneaks into kids' Bible stories that the armor is too big for David. That is not why David doesn't wear the armor. He's like, I, don't, I haven't used this before. I haven't tested it. I'm a shepherd. I don't wear armor. I'm not comfortable in this. Uh, this the male armor, the scale armor is not for me. I'm going to put it aside. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, his shepherd's staff, and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So David's like, no armor. I'm taking my shepherd's staff and a sling. Uh, he, takes, he gets five smooth stones for the sling. So a lot has been made about the question, why does he choose five stones? Maybe Goliath has four other brothers. Maybe. We're not quite sure. Um, maybe that's all his pouch would hold. My hunch is he thought he would miss a few times. I mean, it's like he's going into battle. Don't you want to have as many as you can hold? Um, verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. The Bible sees this over and over again. David's a good-looking dude. Right? And, but he's kind of skinny, and, and Goliath's like, what is up with these people? Right? They send out I mean, this GQ, you know, model who's super skinny. Um, and it makes him mad. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Apparently, he saw David's shepherd's staff. That's why he said, am I a dog? Do you come at me with a stick? What's that little stick going to do? You see my armor? So apparently, Goliath did not recognize the true weapon, which was the sling. Saw the stick. But even at that, we see in the next passage, the sling is actually not David's true weaponry. What is David's offensive weapon. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. We might expect him to say, but I come to you with a sling. Doesn't say that. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you, come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. There is an offensive weapon for the people of God and is not held in the hand of the people of God. It is the Lord of hosts who fights for his people. This day, verse 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. The same language Goliath just used with him. So that, so that, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword or a spear or a sling, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The battle is not about you or me being courageous. It's not really even about David being courageous because he says, I come to you in the name of another. I'm the messenger here. In the name of the God 
of the armies of Israel. And so if, if you're reading along the narrative after all this detail in the passage, all like even the detail about the armor and the big beam and all this kind of stuff, you expect the battle passage to be rich in detail and, ex- and span on for paragraphs and chapters in our Bible. There's so much detail. Here's what you get. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. As David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground, period, full stop. That's the battle. Wow. That was really quick. Yeah, why? Because the Lord was doing that. That's why. Some Some battle. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So apparently he crushes his head, crushes his head. Another little detail to remember. He falls face down on the ground into the dust. Another detail to remember. By the way, like the god the idol god Dagon did in 1 Samuel 5 fell on his face, the Philistine god, into, into the dust. And then David runs over, grabs his sword, and takes it and cuts off his head. So kills Goliath with his own weapon. Kills Goliath with his own weapon. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they did not say, well, I guess we're your servants now, like they said they would. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose and with a shout, with a shout, and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so they that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shearim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. What? Uh, but he helped put his armor in his tent. But he put his armor in his tent. So seeing that they've been fought for, then the people cowering in the hills like, yeah, that's right, we are strong. And they go after uh, David. Okay, through this I said, remember a couple of details. And I'm going to forget the ones I said to remember. I didn't write them all down. But um, this is a cosmic story that begins in the garden and ends at the cross. In the garden, there is a serpent. Over and over again, we're told serpents have scales. <laughs> Hence the phrase scale armor. Didn't use the regular word for armor. It's scale armor that Goliath had on, and David said, that's not for me. It's not for me. Goliath's helmet was made of bronze. If you remember, in the wilderness, serpents bit Israelites, so they were unfaithful, and God made a serpent of bronze for them to look at. So bronze is connected with the work of Satan as well. Um, and these, I, yes, did the, did the original readers of this know all these details? Nope, not until Luke 24, you know, when they heard the equivalent of, no, I am your father, then it would have made sense. But now we know. In the garden, after uh, Adam and Eve have been led into temptation by the serpent, God comes and gives judgment on the serpent and says, I will send one one day who will undo what you did today. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Again, uh, so it's a picture of the the Messiah, Jesus coming and crushing the serpent's head, right? 
And that it, will, it will be at cost to Jesus himself. He will pay the, the price, the, the crushing of his heel, but in the process, he will crush the serpent's head. Now, that's, that's Calvary. Um, uh, it, so he will, Goliath is a sort of the stand-in for Satan in this picture, right? His head is crushed by his stone. He falls on his face in the dust as the, as the serpent was condemned to be in the dust. He mocks Israel for 40 days. What does that remind you of? Satan tempting Jesus for 40 days. And his name is Goliath of Gath. And I said this a few months ago, last year sometime, and I said I wasn't quite sure about it. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more sure. But it might be confirmation bias, I can't tell you. But um, I think this is the case. The text doesn't say this, but it invites us to consider this possibility. It says, oddly, David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. That's an odd detail in the text. So just so you know, Jerusalem wasn't a city yet, this, the capital. It was, another, it was named by another, uh, it was by another name. And David, after this, goes and conquers that city and makes it the capital. And it said, so if he took the head right after that, he would have gone and, to this city and held it up and said, if you, you don't surrender, this is what happens to you. We've taken the head of Goliath, the greatest champion in the land. That's gruesome warfare stuff, you know. It's just describing what happens. It's not telling us what we should do. It's just describing it. And then, because of Israel clean laws, the head of Goliath would not be able to come into the city where people lived. It would have been buried outside the city of Jerusalem. It's the most famous warrior and the most famous victory in the history of Israel of the one representative, the one, the, the one David of whom the, Jesus is the greater David. He beats Goliath. The head would have been buried outside Jerusalem somewhere. All four Gospels tell us that when Jesus is crucified, it is at a place called Golgotha, which it means the place of the skull, except it's not a translation of any known language where it says place of the skull. It just says, oh, this is Golgotha, place of the skull. Let me make a suggestion. And this is not, this is not only with me. A lot of people think this. Um, it's still a minority report, but it's gaining ground historically. Goliath is the Goliath of Gath. Let's just run that. Let's just make, let's just make that a construction in Hebrew. Goliath of Gath. Golagoth. Golagoth. You run it together in Hebrew, it sounds like Golagoth. Golgotha is probably, I think, the place where they had buried the skull of Goliath. It was well known to the people because it was the greatest victory in the history of Israel. David buried Goliath's skull somewhere outside the city because clean laws wouldn't let him come in at a place that became known as the place of the skull, which was the place where Jesus was crucified. Now catch the picture. Jesus is lifted up on a cross just above the ground on this place called the place of the skull over which the one who represented Satan's head was buried and crushed and his heel is right over it as he hangs on the cross. I think that those, those little Easter eggs are in that text. And Jesus, like David, what is, what, what is Satan's weapon? Hebrews 2 says, it's the fear of death. 
And, G, and Satan thinks he has Christ because he's dead. And in that death, Jesus actually defeats Satan with his own weapon. Just like David did with Goliath by taking his sword and lopping off his head. So I don't know if that whole part about Golgotha is in there. I don't know. I'm not sh- quite sure. But I do know this. On that Good Friday, which we'll celebrate this Friday, at that place called Golgotha, the skull, Jesus broke the power of death. There we saw that we have a warrior king anticipated by David that fights for his people. And here's the, here's the single application question I have for us today. What if at the end of the day, what if at the beginning of the day and every moment in the day and at the end of the day, what if in the first day of our life to the very last day we draw breath and every day after that and every day in between, what if you actually have a warrior who fights for you? What if, at bottom, it's not on you to sustain your life and to fight for you and to fight for your rights and to fight for your pride and to fight for your success? What if there's one who loves you and says, I will fight for you with my life to the death, and then after that I will be raised to life again and I will give myself to you every single day after that? What does that do to us psychologically, sociologically, What kind of courage that might that actually birth in the people of God if we refuse to put ourselves in the place of the hero and let the actual hero be the hero of that story? I submit to you, it brings all kinds of courage, and we don't even know how much. We simply have to keep looking at Jesus as the one who actually fights for you and you and you and you and me and us together. This is part of the reason we go to the communion table every single week. We are celebrating here Jesus' relentless willingness to be a warrior for his people. If you're in Christ by faith, we want to invite you to come to the communion table. I'm going to pray and invite you to uh, come to the table. By, we'll go by these curtains here and these curtains here and approach from the outside. In the back, get a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine. Get your elements and come back to your seat. And then we will all partake together. Let me pray, and then I'll invite you to go get those elements. Lord Jesus, you are our warrior king. Lord, I I confess that I am so quick to place myself in the role of hero of my own story, which is just ridiculous if I think about five minutes of my own life. Thank you that even when we do that, you pursue us, you rescue us, you step in and continue to fight for us. Now we come to the table. Press that reality on our souls all afresh again. In your name we pray. Amen. As you're prepared, grab your elements, come back to your seat.